0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. If you have your Bible, I'd like to encourage you to head to Romans 9. We're going to look at verses 14 through 29. If you're a guest here or you don't have a Bible, underneath one of those seats somewhere in front of you or around you is a pew Bible, and that'll be on page 1004 if you'd like to follow along. Or if you're using an app like YouVersion, we have an event And you can follow along, and we put the scriptures in there if you find us in the event on the YouVersion app. Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. And and I just want to say, first of all, if you're a guest here, welcome. I love that you're here, and you've come on possibly the best or the worst Sunday. But for whatever reason, I believe God has drawn you here today, and praise the Lord for that. So I won't make apologies for what's about to happen, but I will encourage that if this is a little rough, come back. We've got Palm Sunday coming, and I'm really excited about that sermon, and Easter coming, and then we're going to spend four weeks in Jude, and then we'll pick Romans back up in Romans 10. But we are in Romans 9, 14 through 29, and I want to tell you, uh, I have a Bible at home. I mark all the passages that I have preached through, and it's my goal and my hope someday to preach through the entirety of the Bible. And I've preached through quite a bit of the Bible over the last 12 years. I've preached through this text before in a previous context. It was the same then as it is now. I believe this is the most difficult passage of Scripture in all of the Bible. I think it's the hardest to hear. It is the hardest to preach. Uh, It is the hardest for us to embrace But we are not going to skip it. We said we're going through the book of Romans, so we've now come to what I find to be the most difficult. It's more difficult than preaching through the book of Revelation. It's more difficult than Ezekiel. It's more difficult than Daniel's weird visions. This is the one that if I were ever to say, if I was ever going to not preach a text of Scripture, it would be this one. So here I am, thanks to many people who've been praying that I would... Show up this morning and step into the pulpit. Let's go ahead and read this text together, Romans 9, starting in verse 14. And also, I want to let you know there is a change between, uh, so the CSB still has a committee and they're, as they're working on words, still updating some things. So the, the what 2017 or 2020 version is not quite the same as the most updated. So if you're following along on the screen, you're going to see a couple words that are a little bit different. Don't let that trouble you. All right. Lord help us, Romans 9, verse 14. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, so that I may display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. You will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you? a mere man, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? And what if God, wanting to display his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience, object of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory on us, the ones he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? As it also says in Hosea, I will call not my people, my people, and she who is unloved, beloved. And it will be in the place where they were told you are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. But Isaiah cries out concerning Israel though the number of Israelites is like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved, since the Lord will execute his sentence completely and decisively on the earth. And just as Isaiah predicted, the Lord, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom. And we would have been like Gomorrah. Father, as we walk through your scripture here, your word to us, help us to see what it is that you have for us this morning. Help us to see your word. Help us to embrace it. Help us to understand it. And God, above all, help us to trust you. And Lord, help me to preach it. And preach it correctly and straight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so what we just read is is hard to hear. What this text is doing is putting us to the test. Do you realize? It is testing us. Do we really trust God? Do we really believe God? How we respond to, to passages like Romans 9 here exposes whether we pass the test or not. What we just read is Paul's inspired by God anticipated response to how he thinks his readers are going to react to the previous text that he just said. He quoted God in verse 15. We dealt with it a little bit last week. He said, I have loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. That statement originally comes from the prophet Malachi to Israel. Malachi 1, 1-3. And now Paul is quoting that statement and using it as evidence to say that nothing that Jacob or Esau did before they were born or in history past or in their future choices could influence God to choose who he chooses. Now, some readers take offense to that idea. They don't like the idea that God would choose some people rather than others, that God would choose the Israelites rather than the Canaanites, that God would choose Jacob rather than Esau. They're offended by that thought. But rest assured, Paul's original readers were not offended that God chooses who he chooses. In fact, they highly valued and loved that they were chosen people over others. They cherished that idea. The problem they had, where they found offense, was by the condition God would choose. They wanted to believe that they had right standing with God because of their physical lineage, because of their DNA, their nation of origin. They wanted to believe that they would be justified because of the people they were. They wanted to believe that they would be saved because of their DNA. And Paul was arguing otherwise. And most of us in this room, we're not going to struggle with this text because we put our hope and our trust in our physical lineage. That wouldn't work for most of us. Most of us are not physically Jewish anyway. And that's not why we find this offensive or difficult. But we still do struggle with this text, right? I think most of us probably hearing this is going, whoa, that's a hard text. Why are we struggling? Where's the discomfort coming from? It's coming in a few areas. One of the areas of discomfort that we have is with God's sovereignty, truly his sovereignty, because we kind of want to hold on in some area, We want to be sovereign. We we struggle with that. We want to be in charge, at least in some area or another of our life. Another area of discomfort comes when we're forced to ask the question, is God not fair? Is God just? If he's not fair, can we really trust his word? That's kind of concerning. Another area of comfort still has to do with God hating Esau. That's tough. It says right here, God hated somebody. It says it in the Old Testament and it says it in the New Testament. Interestingly, nobody ever has a problem with God loving, sneaky, conniving Jacob. Nobody ever calls that out. I think it's because we know we might be sneaky and conniving. How great to be loved. How terrible to be hated. We don't like hearing that God might hate somebody. But that echoes Psalm 11:5. The Lord examines the righteous, but he hates the wicked and those who love violence. The Bible, in multiple places, has now said God hates somebody. We don't like that. It's concerning. None of this is easy stuff, it takes time to, to chew on. And to think about, it's weighty, but praise the Lord for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that faith comes, or excuse me, that salvation comes by faith in Jesus Christ, and not fully grasping all the precepts of what God has said to us, but faith in Christ. And praise the Lord for the Holy Spirit, who helps us to... to chew on these meaty things, and to wrestle through the difficult things. Praise the Lord that we are not alone in this, that we have God himself to help us in these meaty matters. When we read these hard things in Scripture, I think we find ourselves in our flesh doing battle with God's word. I don't want that. I don't want to read that. Maybe we should just skip that this week. But in the end, what this text is doing is It's God speaking to us, asking us to trust Him and to submit to His Word and His instruction for us. And that's exactly what we are faced with this morning. None of you are going to be able to walk out of here without having to face the question, will I trust this? That's what we're up against this morning. So guests, welcome. We take the Bible very seriously here. Uh, enjoy. Enjoy. <laughs> So Paul handles his reader's objections in two parts. All right, He he basically asks questions back to the reader, or he, he states a question the reader might be asking, and then he deals with it that way. Now, Paul is the human author. God is the inspiration and the divine author. And so in a way, let us look at this as if we are the ones here objecting to what we're reading and hearing back from God what he has to say about it. I'm going to take these in turn, just each question. We'll start with Romans 9, 14 through 18. Let's read that one again. What should we say then? Remember, we just heard God chooses, he, he loves Jacob, he hated Esau. Uh, it's not through physical lineage, it's through faith and trust in God. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, so that I may display my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. That's tough stuff. And when we read Romans 9, when we read God chooses who he chooses, and we say, that's so unfair, God, we're responding just like the people Paul is assuming. You want to find yourself anywhere in the Bible? It's probably right here. (laughs) That's so unfair, God. What we're saying when we make this claim, and we ask God if he's, got some injustice in him, As we're saying, are you really a fair judge? Are you really just, God? Really? Are or you, are, you, are you a bad judge, God? That's what we're asking. Ironically, when we're asking the question, we're actually playing judge. We're actually determining what's just and not just. We're putting God on the dock and we're judging him. We're assessing his judgment. Why do we do that? Well, because that makes us feel like we can be judge over Him, we can be Lord over Him. Even if we don't realize that's what we're doing, that's what we're doing. So to make his point, Paul quotes Scripture, he's a good preacher, he uses the Bible, he goes back to Exodus 33, 19, and for context... Um, this is where we see, I will show mercy to him who, I will show mercy and I will have compassion on him who I will have compassion. For context, the people of Exodus, this comes from Exodus thirty-three nineteen. 19, the people there had, had just sinned by worshiping a golden calf right after God gave them the law, um, right after he had led them out of uh, Egypt, right? But he was gracious with them. He didn't destroy them right there on the spot. Then God told Moses, that instead of going before them, he's now going to send an angel before the people to drive out their enemies and the people in the, the lands because he says, if he himself were to go, he says, I, I might end up destroying the people on the way. Exodus 33, five says, For the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I went up with you for a single moment, I would destroy you. That's some serious business, right? So Moses is like, ugh, sets up a tent outside the camp, probably for the people's safety. He sets up a tent outside the camp, away from the people. And that's where Moses would meet with God, and he would serve as an intermediary. And while he went into the tent, all the people would see this giant cloud pillar come down and cover the entrance of the tent. And while that was happening, they'd all stand outside of their tents. And they would all watch the proceedings all day long, however long it took, and they would stand and they'd worship and they'd bow and they'd worship and they'd stand and they'd worship, and no doubt this was serious business. This is destructive power. God is potentially going to destroy them. This is serious. I think sometimes we miss how serious this really is and how serious God is. We don't encounter God like this anymore, right? Because Jesus, the, the better Moses, served as our intermediary outside the city on the cross for us. Without that, God would destroy us, stiff-necked sinners. But instead, God destroyed the intermediary. He, God crushed Jesus on the cross In our place. And then on the third day, a very crushed, very dead Jesus was raised to life, thus crushing death for us, still serving as our intermediary. And then Jesus spends 40 days, not so coincidental, like God spending 40 years in the desert with the Israelites. He spends 40 days teaching and instructing the disciples, and then he ascends to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. But he didn't leave us alone. He sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in us and with us and guide us. and so now in so many ways, we are like the tent outside the city communing with God. Sometimes we grow laxadaisical about the, the fear of the Lord and the seriousness of the Lord and the reality of what Jesus has done for us. For us sitting in here, it's nothing like those folks watching the pillar. Wondering if Moses was going to come out alive or if God was just going to strike him dead. They're standing out there the whole time worshiping. Nobody's going back in his tent to binge watch some Netflix to miss the church service. Right? It was serious. They didn't miss the seriousness of it. And meanwhile, back in the tent, while Moses was meeting with God, Moses told God he didn't want to go to the promised land if God wasn't going. And that sounds really nice. Like, wow, I only want to be where you are, God. But then he kind of accused God of not telling Moses the whole plan because he hadn't told him the name of the angel that was going to lead him out. And then God, uh, then Moses asked God, how will it be known that I and your people have found favor with you unless you go with us? Exodus 33, 16. How will the other people of the land know we're God's chosen special people unless it's you that's there? and he was kind of pushing God to do what Moses thought was best. Moses was kind of trying to manipulate God to do what Moses wanted. And then Moses asked God to show him God's glory, which, by the way, nobody saw God's glory and lived. So this is some bold stuff, Moses. Like, you are flirting with some serious danger here. But God graciously said he would show Moses God's glory, but he puts a caveat. You can't see my face or you'll definitely die. So he puts some parameters in place so Moses can live, but God still graciously shows him his glory. But then he adds a very peculiar sentence. He says, I'm gonna show you, but then he says, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. What? Why did he say that? Most commentators agree, and I agree, that this follow-up statement in this whole conversation with Moses was God's way of reminding Moses that God is sovereign. Moses was in no position to be calling the shots here. God was saying, I'm going to do this, but you better remember who I am, you mere man. Right? God does what God does on God's terms and nobody else's. Now, Paul took that line, and he quotes it here in Romans 9.15. Why? To remind us of God's sovereignty. He chooses who he loves. He chooses who he saves. And we don't. God does what God does, regardless of what we think of it, regardless of we want it to be. And then to really help us understand, he just drops this huge quote. This says, God is sovereign, just so we don't miss it. If you look there, he follows it up in verse 16. So then Paul says, it does not depend on human will, not free will or otherwise, not your desires, not anybody else's desires. It does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. What is it referring to? Who he shows mercy to. What is he talking about being gracious and showing mercy? To whom he loves, Jacob. Who he hated, Esau. His choice. Is God unfair? God shows mercy to whom God shows mercy. So the only factor about who is a child of God is based on who God shows mercy to. There's no other factors. My wife and I Recently, rewatched the West Wing. I don't know if any of you watched that series a while back. Great series, good stuff. We rewatched the West Wing, and in the very last season, um, there's some spoiler alerts here. But if you haven't seen it by now, whatever. Toby Ziegler, who was on the president's staff in the show, um, he leaked some classified information in an effort to save some NASA astronauts who were endangered. Uh, there was a lot of debate going on, and he knew there was some info that if it was known, could maybe save these astronauts' lives. Unfortunately, in the process, he broke some major classified laws. Okay, he, he did the wrong thing. And he ends up going to prison on the last day of President Bartlett's presidency. Uh, no business left to do. They're just going to show up, and the new president's going to be sworn in. Toby Ziegler's pardon paperwork is sitting on the president's desk. All the other pardon cases have been heard. All the other work has been done. There's nothing left to do, but President Bartlett is trying to make this determination if he's going to pardon his dear friend, Toby, for the crimes that he committed. Other staff members have come, and they've tried to convince President Bartlett to pardon Toby. But it's not their decision. It's not their signature on the paperwork, and he reminds them of that. It wasn't even up to Toby if the president would pardon him. In fact, Toby didn't even know that there was pardon paperwork submitted on his behalf. He didn't know. A different staffer probably did it. He was unaware. And even if he did know, his personality was such that if other people who had done the exact same thing were being pardoned, he would have said, they did the crime. They should do the time. So Toby, already in his own conscience and already in the things he's said, has already made it clear that he wouldn't choose to pardon Toby Ziegler. But all this was up to President Bartlett. It was his choice and his alone as the president. He would either show mercy to Toby or he wouldn't. And it wasn't even an issue there of what is... Fair, the president has some different parameters than God has, doesn't he? Fair is those who have done wrong get punished. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody. All of us have done done wrong. We're all indicted. The punishment, Romans 6.23 says, is death. We're all sitting under a death sentence. We're all guilty on death row. But God doesn't sit there with pardon paperwork on his desk. He's not trying to go back and forth trying to decide because if he signs pardon paperwork, he's saying the person did wrong, yes. The person is guilty, yes. But there will be no punishment as previously decreed. The law won't stand. If God just pardoned our crimes, like President Bartlett pardoned Toby's crimes he'd be a bad judge. He cannot just turn a blind eye to sin. He can't do it. Instead, in his grace, he punished his one and only son, Jesus Christ, in our place. Punishment was paid. The sinner was punished, not pardoned. God, in his mercy and grace, allowed our sin, our sentence to be imputed on Jesus. And now he who knew no sin was made to be sin, and he was crushed on the cross under it. And then Jesus, in his mercy and grace, allows his righteousness to be imparted onto us. It's imputed righteousness, which allows us to be saved. This is gracious mercy. But it's God and his sovereignty who chooses who gets this mercy, who gets this fantastic, wonderful blessing. God calls the shots, not us. Okay, now, right now, some of you, kind of there in your seat, you're kind of cheering, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Others of you are mentally writing an email to me about how you hate this sermon and then most of you were like, can we just change the subject? Please, can we? This is like the awkward moment at a dinner party when somebody brings up politics, religion, money. We're like, oh, this is so awkward. <laughs> Once in a while, I get people who come to me, and they, um, they come and say, oh, when are we going to get to the meat? I mean, I know we're dealing with the milk, but when are we going to get to the meat? When are you going to preach the meat? When are you going to do this? We've got to get to the meat. And my new answer for them is going to be to say, why don't you just spend the next three months meditating on Romans 9? You're welcome. <laughs> like, ah. Now here's the kicker. Paul doesn't let up. Paul comes to another point to make his case. He doesn't let up, so I'm not going to let up. He has another example. I realize this is meaty. I realize this is big boy pants stuff. His next example is Pharaoh. So now he quotes from Exodus 9.16, where he says that God said to Pharaoh, I raised you up, Pharaoh, for this reason, so that I may display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in the whole earth. Pharaoh was a lost person. Pharaoh did not have faith in Jesus Christ, faith in God at all. In fact, he was against God. So starting position of this Pharaoh was a lost person. But then God took this unsaved person, and God abundantly blessed him. He gave him wealth and power that he would raise up through these ranks that he'd be born in this place in this way. He gave Pharaoh the strongest army on the face of the planet. He allowed Pharaoh to enslave the Israelite people. He allowed Pharaoh to kill all the male-born children, except Moses escaped in the basket. Praise the Lord. He raised up Pharaoh to be the most powerful person on earth so that when God took out Pharaoh, there would be no doubt how powerful God is. No doubt. And when it was over, Pharaoh was still an unsaved person. From his perspective, nothing really changed, did it? We don't like this, but that's what's here in God's word. Later, God would use a wicked nation, the nation of Babylon, to help correct, rebuke, and train his people. They would come in and they would do some things to the nation of Israel. And then God would use that wicked nation to proclaim God's Glory. And then God would bring another wicked nation to take out the first wicked nation, and He did it in a day. All of this is to show that God is sovereign and God is powerful. God is in control of the nations. God used Judas, an unsaved man, to portray our Savior. Jesus went up on a hill to pray about the 12 apostles, and He prayed all night talking to the Father. You don't think He didn't know who Judas was? That was no surprise to Jesus, none whatsoever. God used an unsaved wicked man to do his work. God used Pilate to send Jesus to the cross, an unsaved man. God used him to send Jesus to the cross, and then Jesus said to Pilate, You would have no authority over me at all if... It hadn't been given to you from above. Who raised up Pilate? God did. Revelation 20 tells us that Satan will be bound for a thousand years, but he must be released for a short time. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. Why in the world, if you've got Satan bound, would you just release him and let him out to deceive the nations, To gather all of his people, as many as the sands of the sea, to come against God's people. It says the, the hordes of Satan's people surround all of God's people where they are encamped. Why would you allow this? Because when it looks impossibly lost to display God's power and that God's name would be proclaimed in all the earth, it says, and I quote, then Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Revelation 29, battle over in an instant. No contest. All glory to God and God alone. This is the God who's now asking us to trust him. This God, this all-powerful God, who is sovereign over nations and over people and over all things. Okay. Probably um, I've used enough time on the first point. The first question, remember, is God unjust? And the answer, God is sovereign. God does what God does. God is not unjust. He shows mercy to whom he shows mercy. He shows compassion to whom he shows compassion. No. He's not unjust. Now let's look at Verse 19, he will say to me, "There's another rejection, ready? Why then does he, God, still find fault? For who can resist his will? Why does he still find fault? We ask this this way today. If it's God's choice who he loves, if it's God's choice who he saves, how can God still hold sinners accountable to their sin? How can he do that? I've heard that before. I've said that before. I've worked myself. Wait a minute. Wait a second. But did you notice something? God did not answer the question. He didn't answer that question. You know why? He already answered it in question number one. He's not going to answer it again. He doesn't need to. He just said, I'm sovereign. He just said, I do what I do by my choice. So now, knowing the heart of man and the will of man and the sinfulness of man, he says, who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? Or am I saying, who are you, a human to talk back to God. If we're asking the second question, then it says we didn't learn from the first. We didn't get it the first time. God is sovereign. His ways are right. God does what God does. And the point of this is he's asking us if we will trust him. So it reminds me of God's encounter with Job. Ladies, by the way, um, in our morning 9:30 class that's starting up on April 16th, my wife is going to lead uh, a women's study through Job, and she and I are going through that right now. And it is hard, and it is outstanding, and I am blessed by it. And I would encourage that you sign up for it and be blessed by it. Dudes, you're out of luck this quarter. But maybe we'll do the Job study next quarter. I don't know. Otherwise, you can be one of the other classes that are sign-ups around the hall. Anyway, God encounters Job. And it's like this, Job 7.20. uh, I'm paraphrasing Job's statement. He says, I demand an audience with God. I want answers. He says it in a more poetic way. But that's what he's saying. I want answers. My friends are here, whatever. But I want to talk to God about this. I demand to talk to God. And at the end of the book, in such a remarkable, beautiful, enjoyable way, God shows up, and he says to Job, and this is 38 verses 2 through 3, this is how God shows up, and this is the first thing he says to Job. Who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. You know what that is? Put on the big boy pants, son. This is about to get very real. And then God asks 54 questions of Job, about Job's world, about Job's reality, about our world. It's really about our reality, and Job can't answer any of them, which, by the way, we couldn't either. They're like, where were you when I created this stuff? What do you know about where lightning strikes? What do you know about where the snow is stored for times of war? I mean, it's a huge deal. Did you put the power into the horse and his rider? I mean, like, it's awesome stuff, right? Tell me, Job, if you can. It's that moment. Which I think some of us have had that moment with our children when they mouth off. Then it gets to Job 40, verse 2, and God asks Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who argues with God give an answer. This is Job's response in verses 4 and 5. I am so insignificant. (laughs) How do I answer you? Uh, I place my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not reply twice, but now I can add nothing. I think Job learned his lesson, but that didn't stop God from asking him 19 more questions and then dropping a volley of other remarkable information that Job needed to learn. And then when it's all over, Job humbly responds. Surely I spoke about things I did not understand, things too wondrous for me to know. That should be our response when we encounter God with a haughty attitude. Job was humbled. Job was righteous. Job learned the same point I hope we're learning this morning. God is sovereign. God's in control. God does what God does. God knows best. And God is asking us to trust him. Now there's something else I want you to see about God here. I don't think Paul makes it as clear, because Paul's going to go on for another couple chapters. So I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, but I think this morning we need to see this. First, God did not have to answer Job. He did not have to answer him, but he did. He knelt down and said, dear child, let me show you something. He did not have to bless Job after all the stuff happened to Job. After all that Job went through, God didn't owe Job anything. He didn't have to bless him, but he did. God didn't have to show Moses his glory. God didn't have to explain what God was going to do, getting him to the promised land, but he did. God did not have to show mercy to the people of Israel when they gave up on God and worshipped the golden calf. He was under no obligation to even keep them alive, let alone show them mercy and blessing and grace. But he did. God did not have to show us mercy by sending his son to die for us. But he did, even when we were his enemies, his arch enemies, hating God. He didn't have to send Jesus to face that, but he did. God doesn't have to show us mercy and compassion for giving us every single time we give up on him and we run to our own golden calves. We do every day. Every time we sin, every time we push God away, and he just gently, graciously brings us back, forgives us, brings others around us, guides us, directs us, continues to love us, even when basically we've given him the bird over and over and over again. He doesn't have to forgive us, but he does. He doesn't have to answer our objections when we struggle with his word. He could be like the parent that says, Because I said so. He doesn't have to help us when we struggle, but he does. If you're struggling, talk with him. Confess it. Say, God, I struggle with this. Help me see it. Help me understand it. Help me chew the big, meaty pieces that my teeth aren't sharp enough yet to get through. Help me. And he will. Because he's gracious. He will show mercy on you. He will have compassion on you. If you want to know God, if you want to understand his word, if you want to have him, you will. Because he chose to show you mercy and grace. Well, how do, how do I know? How do I know he chose me? How do I know I'm not one of those over there? Because if you want to know God, he chose you. Because those who are against God, who hate him, they want to have nothing to do with him. They reject him at every turn. They keep him at arm's distance always. If you want to know God, it's because God is drawing you to him. If you're nervous that you might not be his, ask yourself this question. Do I want Jesus, who Jesus says he is, on Jesus' terms? And If the answer is yes, then you have him. In fact, if the answer is yes, I want Jesus. I want to know him on his terms. I want to follow him. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be saved. And you can say to Jesus right now, that's what I want. And he will have mercy and compassion on you. Even if you're a stiff-necked sinner who he will have to forgive every day, over and over and over again for the rest of your life, he'll do it. Because he chooses whom he loves, and he will love you. And if you want him, you have him. Our God is compassionate and merciful. It says so. And our God will show compassion on whom he will show compassion. and He will show mercy on whom he will show mercy, because he's sovereign and he does what he does. That's what his word says. So now the only question for us in this moment right now for you and for me whether you don't profess to be a christian whether you've been a christian as long as you can possibly remember the only question facing us right now is will you trust him and take him at his word let's pray god we believe but help our unbelief (laughs) God, we seek to be close to you and understand and see. But, Lord, sometimes our vision is cloudy. Sometimes we are blind. Open our eyes. Open our ears. Help us to understand. Lord, we we need your help to, to really see who you are. And, God, may we be humbly submitted to you. May we give up all of our desires to run our own kingdom and to be sovereign And to call all the shots, and may we just simply hear from you, recognize your voice, and follow you faithfully. And Lord, as we're about to take the Lord's Supper that you instituted to remind us of the cross, to draw us back to you, Lord, it is my prayer that we would be drawn so close to you, that you would forgive us of our sins, of our golden calves. You would help us in our difficulty. That we would take serious Jesus interceding for us on the cross. Like the people in Moses' day outside their tents, worshiping, standing, sitting, worshiping all day long. Lord, let us take this seriously. And Lord, for those who've come in here, maybe they didn't profess to be a Jesus follower before now. But Lord, they're saying, I want Jesus. And Lord, I'm asking that you would turn their hearts in that way. To desire you. Lord, let them make that profession that they would trust you, that they could take the Lord's Supper together with us. God, thank you for your help in walking through this very difficult word. And Lord, thank you for a church that is open to truly hear what you have to say, even if it's hard. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.